0: Lee is going to teach, but I'm going to just pick up where we left off last week. Um, There are still a couple of seats up here on the front. If there's a seat beside you, you raise your hand. I see two right here, and I see one back there. Um, (coughs) Last week, and I put this up this morning. I know you can't probably see the green very well, but these are the three weeks that we've done up to this point just... Uh, little snapshots to trigger your memory. So last week we talked about practicing everyday acts of mercy. And um, let's see, let me open one little thing. We talked about um, how practicing mercy, you can see it all through James and the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes the word mercy isn't used. It's, It's maybe forgiveness you heard it just now if you listened to yourself when you're praying the Sermon on the Mount uh, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer <laughs> um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us it's always coming back to show mercy so you'll be shown mercy if you judge you'll be judged it's all through James and the Sermon on the Mount Um, So we looked at speak and act as those who will be judged by the perfect law that gives freedom. For judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, And the wisdom, and of course this whole class is about looking at the wisdom literature for living well. (laughs) The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And of course, the beatitude that we know so well: um, <coughs> "Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy." Um, but then, like I said, in the Lord's prayer, after the Lord's prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "You know, it's uh, forgive your debtors." Um, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then it goes on. Jesus goes on to say, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, He will not forgive you your sins. And so we talked about exploring our sin. And um, we talked about coming to a place of mercy because of a heightened awareness of your need for mercy. And your heightened awareness for your need for mercy kinda comes from your awareness of the reality of your situation. And so I encouraged you to sometimes look when you hear a story or an anecdote, look for how the bad guy in that story is exhibiting uh, motives that resonate with you and sometimes i am further detached from my motives than from other times and so i told you that i i find journaling helpful you may or may not find journaling helpful but when i'm really trying to drill down into what's underneath that for me you know i snapped in anger what is underneath that and i have to sit with it for a while and let the drilling occur and the motives come bubbling up and then I'm aghast. And <laughs> I realize, oh dear, <laughs> those are pretty bad ones. Um, and that puts me in touch with my need for mercy. Um, so I encourage you, to do these things and then to look for ways to incorporate day-to-day mercy in your everyday living so it's so great if you can go to the prison regularly and visit the prisoner and it's so great if you can adopt an orphan and it's so great to do these things and I wouldn't want to discount you when you do but we can take it sometimes we can take that to an unhelpful Extreme kind of a checklist in our brain, um, like yes, I called my cousin who's lonely, and so I'm good now for the week. I've I did you know I did that, and you know check for the week and feel good about that. But I encouraged you, and uh, Benita Hampton Wright encourages us in that article that I read. Some about to look for ways to incorporate acts of everyday mercy in your life. And so the one that resonated with me, probably most in that article, was not sending your food back when it comes out wrong, because you can tell the waitress is flustered, and she's stressed and having a bad day. Simple little things. And we have to kind of get ahead of ourselves, I think, uh, in our thinking and our expectations to do that. Sure, do it by pure, steely determination at first, but through practicing and through searching your motives, you can begin to make some of those practices more um, your go-to. You can really, truly rewire your brain. And uh, uh, the more you travel those paths, they will become cleared and let some of the other paths grow over that. I have to speak up for myself. I asked for this without onions and I have to speak up for myself. Well, we speak up for ourselves a lot. I do. And so for me, it's good for me just to pick the onions off. That's good for me. That may not be good for you, but that's a good example for me. You have different examples. Um, So I wanted to share something I learned this week about mercy. It's an everyday act of mercy. And then I wanted you guys to then think, pair, share. So my act of mercy is not one I did. It's one someone else did to me. I don't know if you guys have heard of Warby Parker. It is a place where you can get cool glasses <laughs> for a good price, and it is on Villa in the Belmont area, and there is no good parking around Warby Parker. And I had been told, we've been told by several friends, go to Warby Parker. So I asked a coworker to go over there with me on Thursday afternoon. and. We were both just, we just both couldn't think anymore, couldn't do anything more. So, at 4 o'clock, she followed me to Warby Parker. The traffic was bad. That is not the time to go to Warby Parker right (laughs) at the end of the workday. And we get over there. So, we're in two cars. She's following me because we're both going to go home from Warby Parker. You know, we're not going back to work. And so, we needed two parking spots. And there's no parking. So, we park in this paid parking lot that is right beside the store but that machine was not working. You know, you're supposed to pay for it and then it prints out a ticket and you put that on your dashboard or you'll get towed. Well, it wasn't working. It wasn't taking the cards, And so there were two women who both had their phones out and they had already determined this and they told us, it's not working. You have to go to this app. There was a sign up that said, if the machine's not working, download this app and pay over this app." (laughs) And they couldn't get the app to download. So I thought, I'm not doing that. I'm going to write a note and I'm going to put it on my dashboard because I shouldn't have to invest 20 minutes in parking my car when we're probably going to look at the glasses for 20 minutes. And I am not spending the same amount of time parking as I am shopping for new eyewear. So, I wrote a note to put on my dashboard, and I wrote a note for her to put on her dashboard. <laughs> put them on her dashboards. And um, we went into the store. Well, my friend was very nervous that her car was going to be towed. I was not nervous at all. <laughs> she said, if my car gets towed, are you going to pay for it? <laughs> Well, I don't want to pay for two cars to get towed. And so we went into the store, and we expressed our consternation to the salesperson. And he was standing there in his cool glasses, and he said, yes, your car will get towed, because if you don't pay for it, you're supposed to download that app. And he said, we don't own that lot. Well, back about 25 years ago, I read a book called Customers for Life as a marketing student. And it It did me (laughs) in. I'm sure that is great for business owners to read, but for customers, it wreaks havoc in your brain. So, for the first five years of our life, we got lots of free stuff, because I could write persuasive letters and throw myself over the counter in compelling ways (laughs) to convince the salesperson to give us things that would make us customers for life. And I would even explain to them, you want me to still be purchasing from you a decade from now, two decades from now, and that's why you're gonna give this to me now. (laughs) So that got me in some trouble years ago, and I have overcome what I learned in that book. However, it bubbles up sometimes, and it bubbled up to me in that moment. And I said to this person in these cool glasses, you want us to come (coughs) buy glasses from you, but you haven't given us anywhere to park our cars. And that's the problem. So we left on principle, and I thought, I'm not buying my glasses from Morby Parker, because they won't even give me a parking spot to park my car. We left. I didn't make a scene, but I said those words roughly, and we left. Well, my friend was mortified. (laughs) And the salesperson said, I'm sorry, we don't own the lot, we just lease this place. And I thought, Yeah, well, now you now, now you know. <laughs> so we left and I came home and I told Lee all about it. Lee was not impressed at all. He's heard me <laughs> do that so many times. And so on Saturday, Saturday came, Lee and I both need new glasses. I don't know if you all noticed, he's had a wire wrapped around this side of his glasses for like six or eight weeks. So he and I both need new glasses. And I was just in the mood to go give it another try. And I wanted to go to Warby Parker. So I said, let's go to Warby Parker. So we went in. And this very same salesperson, <laughs> <laughs> who I had smarted off to 48 hours prior, sold us our glasses.
1: I didn't know that. <laughs> the same got
0: and <laughs> He gave us 20% off <laughs> for a different reason. But,
2: <laughs>
0: but my point is, he showed me everyday mercy. So when I got home and I texted my coworker, we bought new glasses. Um, she said, I, sh- I, sh- I sent her a picture of us in our new glasses. And they looked like mug shots. We didn't <coughs> smile. I don't know why, but she said, you're not smiling. By the way, that's the guy that you, you know, told off the other day. I see him in the background in this picture. What, what did he say? And I said, you know, and I, I had thought he didn't say a thing. He was just cool as a cucumber about it. He didn't say one thing to me. Um, and he was as gracious as he could possibly be. And he was really engaged in helping us find glasses that really, really suited us. Now, maybe he didn't recognize me. But if he did, he acted like he didn't. And that's what I'm talking about. When we say acts, everyday acts of mercy. So I'd like for you to spend a moment now thinking of an act of everyday mercy that you either observed in somebody else this week or that you experimented with yourself. So take about 60 seconds to think or 30 seconds. And then we're going to pair and share.
2: Okay, you can pair up now
0: and you're supposed to pair with someone who's not your spouse or significant other. About thirty seconds. Each. Thank yeah. No mercy this week.
1: <laughs> somebody, somebody can share somebody else's. Tonight.
0: Somebody can share somebody else's.
1: <laughs> Choosing instead of saying, I told you so, to show compassion even though you saw an event coming a negative event coming in someone else's life that you had warned them against, whether that be a child or a friend. Choosing not to say, say, I I told you you so. That's why I've been telling you not to do that. That's good. Or
0: that's why I've been telling (coughs) you not to do that. One more. Matt.
3: At, uh, I teach at Lipscomb, and Lipscomb has a program called the Ideal Program. And it brings um, students to campus, or young people to campus, who will never go to college. Because they have certain kinds of disabilities, physical learning, uh, uh, mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. But they bring them to campus, and, and they have a program where they can do things, sometimes go to a class or two. And it's It's a special thing, but it's staffed by volunteer students. Mm-hmm. So you often see on campus, students of the same age who've been paired up, one of whom is, is a traditional college student, and another one is a, a person who hasn't been given those abilities. But I'm constantly amazed at is at how, over time, you see the volunteers genuinely befriend those students. You know, they spend time with them on campus. Um, I see them in the gym. They're just sort of shooting baskets, or, or lifting weights together, or having coffee together outside, talking about their, whatever needs to be talked about, Mm -hmm. as if they were good friends. and That always strikes me as an example of students choosing to to spend time, and not just to check the box, but to develop relationships with other people. I mean, that Mm -hmm. seems as a good example of Mm -hmm. showing mercy. That's good.
2: Mm.
0: All right, well, thank you. And now Lee is going to share.
1: If you do have a Bible with you, we're going to do a a shotgun thing on a bunch of Proverbs here in just a second. So um, if you want to flip over there, we'll look at that in just a minute. I want to talk today about the practice of receiving instruction or rebuke. Or criticism. Now, this is this is a hard one for me because I um, I think there's several reasons. One is that as a perfect, you know, I, I'm the one on the Enneagram. If you're in, in, into that kind of stuff, which means that we always kind of have to be perfect, We've got to be right, and so forth. And in my context, theologically. One had not to just be right in what you do. You have to be right even in how you think about what you've done. So, for example, you know, theologically for us, it wasn't sufficient that one had been baptized, immersed as a somewhat of an adult um, in the right way, full immersion, but that you also even had to understand the right reason, namely for the remission of sins and the right words had to be pronounced. And, and quite literally for us, at least in my context growing up, if these things were not done correctly, then you could go to hell. And so there was enschooled in, in us this very deep sort of notion of you got to be right. And if you're not right, you're literally in danger of going to hell forever. And so there's this honest sort of way in which I inherited this you got to be right and you better figure it out. Um, and then, too, I think just thin skin. And, um, and so all of these kind of things together have... have um, made it a process for me to learn to take criticism, to learn to take instruction, to learn to take rebuke. And um, one of the easiest ways to do that is to kind of try to be perfect, right? If You try to be perfect then you don't have to put up with that much. Um, So I'm sure some of you have heard me tell the story about my first B I got was as a fourth grader and I I wept so much that day that by the end of the day my, my Social studies teacher came back to me and said, "You know, I made a mistake, and you actually made an A." And I found a few years ago my report card in the in the uh, attic, where I could see where she had erased the B and had put in an A, which was a terrible thing for her to do to me, a terribly codependent thing for her to do to me. Um, if that is indeed what she was doing. Um, and so you know by the time I go to graduate school my, my and I turn in my I think I'm really good good at this stuff and think I'm a good writer and so forth and I get my first three papers back in grad school a C plus a C plus and a C minus with, with whole pages xed out in red you know irrelevant written off to the side <laughs> what are you thinking did you read what he said you know very difficult thing to begin to process um, but so I'm struck this morning by as I was working through a lot of these proverbs. Let me let me let's just work through a bunch of these real quickly, and let you hear kind of um, what the proverb, this collection of proverbs has to say. Uh, first in chapter nine, early part of proverbs, uh, you have this kind of picture of Lady Wisdom and uh, Dame Folly. So, so Lady Wisdom is especially in chapter nine is inviting you to this banquet. And that's one of the places where we get the name for this course is on flourishing, living a flourishing life. The notion of the Proverbs is as you pursue wisdom, it actually is this invitation to a beautiful, wonderful life. Uh, And so the early part here in in chapter 9 is you're being invited to the banquet feast by Lady Wisdom. And at the end of the chapter is the the danger of Dame Folly uh, that she invites you in as the seductress. And if you fall prey to the, to the seductress, then it leads to the way of Sheol. It leads to the grave. It leads to death. And in the middle of that are these things about um, receiving rebuke. Uh, verse 7, Whoever corrects a scoffer wins abuse. Whoever rebukes the wicked gets hurt. A scoffer who is rebuked will only hate you. The wise, when rebuked, will love you. Give instruction to the wise, and they will become wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will gain in learning. Chapter 10, verse 17. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but one who rejects a rebuke goes astray. Eleven fourteen. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but those who hate to be rebuked are stupid. <laughs> Verse 15, Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to advice. Fools show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. 1. A wise child loves discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Verse 15. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the faithless... Uh, that's wrong. Sorry, verse 3. Uh, those who guard their mouths preserve their lives. Those who open wide their lips come to ruin. I've messed up something here. Let's go on to chapter 14 see if I can get straight. Uh, that's right, I'm not perfect. Verse six, chapter fourteen. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for one who understands. Fifteen five. A fool despises a parent's instruction, but the one who heeds admonition is prudent. And we can kind of go on and on and on. Verse 12, verse 22, 32 to 33, <coughs> 17, 10. Um A rebuke strikes deeper into a discerning person than a hundred blows into a fool," and so forth. So obviously here we've got this kind of persistent message that a mark of wisdom is being able to hear a rebuke. A mark of wisdom is being able to submit to discipline. A mark of wisdom is being able to hear somebody else say, no, that's wrong. And not to let it get to us, not to let it, not to let it destroy us. To be able to hear these sorts of things, I think that um, as I've tried to make some progress in that, um, I think in some ways some of these things have gotten better for me um, in several ways. One is um, in some of the going back to the enneagram stuff. In some of the enneagram literature, they say some people who were the so-called ones. Uh, one of the reasons it's hard for them to hear criticism is because they go around with the criticism in their head already all the time. And so it's like, you know, um, the big marker of of this type is you do have this inner voice in your head that's constantly rebuking you and that's constantly giving you a hard time. And so if somebody else kind of comes along and says, it's like, stop piling on. But that may have been the first thing they've said, you know. But it's like, leave me alone. Because I'm constantly dealing with that voice. I'm always having to navigate listening to the criticism in my head. I don't know if that's any of you or not. Um, But that's the way some of us are wired. So beginning to be aware of that in my head has been important. A second thing that's been really important is the notion of wisdom tradition itself. And rather than thinking about needing to be justified intellectually in my beliefs, to think instead of pursuit of wisdom. Now what I want to, is it okay if I erase this? Um, We'll we'll try to put this stuff back up for next week. One of the reasons I love, have grown to love wisdom tradition stuff is that it is much more um, amenable to a community of growth that is welcoming rather than condemning, because it accepts something that Aristotle used to say. He used to say that a a virtue, some of you I'm sure have heard me talk about this, that a virtue is what he calls a mean between two vices. A vice of deficiency and a vice of excess. So, for example, if the virtue is courage, what do you get if you've got too little of that? Cowardice. Cowardice. <laughs> and what do you have if you have too much of that? Yes, foolhardiness, being brash. You know, fools rush in, right? And one, so one of the beauty, you can do that with lots of lot of all the virtues, mostly all the virtues, and kind of see them as they're right in the middle between too little or too much. And here's the beauty of it: the virtue tradition takes very seriously that all of us are always in progress toward learning how to do these practices well. So it's like, um, where let's let's think about. we've been talking about speaking up or keeping your mouth shut, right? So there's somewhere in the middle of this kind of being prudent in speech. And over here is cowardly keeping your mouth closed. And over here is foolishly opening my mouth. And and so what we have is we all, individually, get to sort out where we are. And some days I'm over here. For a large part of my life, I was more over here, at least in personal relationships, whereas sometimes in professional relationships, I was over here. So then what I had to figure out is in my personal relationships, how can I move more this way? And in, in my professional writing, how can I move back this way? And the only way I could learn when I needed to move was by paying attention to what feedback I'm
2: getting.
1: So rather than seeing feedback as threatening, which is the way I was perceiving it, I began to see feedback as a way for me to flourish in my life. And I began to welcome people giving me feedback. Because I knew that if I will pay attention to people having the courage, and this was one thing that I really had to learn to accept. It is hard It is hard for a friend, well I say it is hard for some friends to go to other friends and say, I feel like I need to tell you something. That's a very courageous thing for a friend to do for another friend. And so if I began to experience that kind of thing, rather than seeing it as some sort of something that was threatening me, I began to realize that was very courageous on the part of my friend to put themselves in a vulnerable position to give me honest feedback. And so kind of changing my perspective, rather than saying any kind of criticism is not about me being wrong as such as a human being, but in giving feedback and helping me grow and flourish in the ways that I needed to grow and flourish. Here's another sort of thing that, that uh, has helped me in recent years. I, uh, I am... Um, I think for a long time I was I was somewhat emotionally retarded. Uh, th- at least that's what the emotional IQ test said to me. Right? I was really surprised some years ago when I, you know, emotional IQ started being a big thing, and I, and I thought, well, I'll I'll probably be. Uh, I know I'm not great about some of this stuff. I'll, I'll, so I'll probably I'll probably make an 80, 75, you know. And I was shocked when I did like a 45. Um, and because one of the ways I dealt with emotions was just not to pay attention to them. And so um, it's hard when you're, you know, and, I, and I, I think that one of the reasons that I and the, the, the camp family are this way, one of the reasons is that my grandmother's father um, committed suicide when she and my grandfather were in the first year of their marriage. And the way my great-grandmother dealt with that was that she went to bed and stayed in bed the rest of her life. And the way my grandmother learned to deal with things that were emotionally difficult is that she simply did not talk about them. And if in the family circle, things came up that made her uncomfortable, she would say nothing or change the subject. My grandmother never said anything to me about the death of her father until I asked her in her 97th year of life. So we like, you know, the way you, how do you deal with stuff that's uncomfortable? You just don't talk about it, right? Well, that, that's not very healthy, or at least it wasn't very healthy for me. And so then I had to learn to start talking about feelings. Well, one of the things that I've realized over the last couple of years is it's still hard for me to talk about things that are hard emotionally. Um, but this is one of the things that I've learned that's helped me. Um, even though in the last decade I've exercised a lot physically, It doesn't matter how much I've exercised, every time I get out and do a hard workout again, it still hurts, right? And it hit me one day, well, that's the way emotional stuff is. Every time I work at my emotional stuff and being vulnerable or talking about stuff that's hard, I need to stop expecting it to feel easy because I don't expect my workout to feel easy. As a matter of fact, I know that if the workout was easy, it wasn't a very good workout. And so beginning to say, well, why can't I take the same attitude about emotional workouts? And yeah, it's just not easy. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. But to stick in there with it because I'm growing as a human being by sticking in there with stuff that's hard. So that, that's some of my, my experiences that have um, kind of helped me reframe the way I'm thinking about taking feedback, taking rebuke, uh, taking instruction. Here's Let me run through a few practical experiences and suggestions that I've, I've, I've also found helpful that people have taught me. First kind of in personal relationships. Um, one is um, to cultivate, it's been helpful to me to cultivate friendships uh, with whom I, in in which I can ask for honest feedback. This was uh, this was very humbling to me, I didn't get his permission to share this so I'm um, but I think, I think it's okay. Um, one day in the last month I had lunch with our youngest son and um, I've been, he's in his senior year so I'm trying to have lunch with him once a week and we have some sort of question I give him ahead of time to think about. And, um, and it's fascinating because he'll tell me other things in talking about that as I just listen that I, we wouldn't have ever gotten to if I hadn't, hadn't done that. So one day I was asking him about some relationship, relationship stuff. And, um, and said, tell me something you've done that, that, that was kind of challenging or put yourself in a vulnerable state lately. And he said, well, one of the things I did um, recently was that I asked so-and-so how I could be a better friend and be less awkward socially. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And then he said, and then... I got some good feedback from him, and then I did the same thing with um, two of my friends at school and asked them the same thing. And so then he told me about some of the things that he had learned about that. Um, Well, that's very humbling to me to think about a 17-year-old being willing to put himself in such a vulnerable position and say, just give me some feedback. What I have discovered is that, um, and and I've started trying to do this in my work relationships, you know. The annual reviews, where it's like, ah, oh, you know, you want you want to be superior on everything, and inevitably you're not. But one of the things that I've learned that helps me be more uh, amenable to feedback on those is to go into it knowing part of my job in that conversation is to ask them directly, tell me more about what I could do to be a better participant in our community here. Tell me more. Tell me more about what I could do better to contribute to this department and contribute to our university. Tell me more about that. And the more I will take a posture of saying, I'm asking for more, I'm taking the initiative to ask for more, it, it creates in me a sort of sense of being willing to listen more. Within these sorts of relationships, another thing I found helpful is this. Uh, I, have, I have a group on, sun, on Saturday mornings I've met with for about eight years, and we know all the, all the dirty details of everybody's dirty laundry and so every every week we'll go around everybody has their time to share and here's our rule is that after sharing no one says anything in response to the other no one gives advice no one says what they think unless they first ask are you open to any feedback about that and if that person says yes then that person has permission to say what I heard was, and then they give feedback. But most of the time, we don't. We don't even go there. We just let people talk. And what's happened in those sorts of that, and I have other friendships in which people know my story. They know the things I've struggled with, and the things that, that are ugly about me. And, and and so having this sort of care about how and when we give feedback flourishes. I think, allows relationships to flourish because we, we respect that we, because we know the prudence right one of the things the Proverbs also talks about is always being care giving care to how and when we deliver words right and so having care about saying you know are you are you at a place of where you can hear this from me and respecting another person to ask them if they're at a place of where they can hear any kind of feedback and if they say no then back off and leave it alone for another sort of time um Another sort of quick thing on um, thing that I found helpful in personal relationships is for me to be careful about judging motives and intentions. I can't know what anybody else is thinking. And I can only know what they're thinking if they tell me what they're thinking. I can I can see what people do, but I, I can not know what they're thinking. And for me to take care about judging what it is that they think. Um, and then the last thing in personal relationships I'll share very quickly is um, I, one of the things I pushed my graduate classes on is, that, um, is, is how, how they're, they're overly nice to each other. You know, they're doing these online conversations, and they just fall all over themselves before they'll, they'll say, I think you misread what Howard Watts was saying on page 163. They preface that with saying, you know I love you, and blah, blah, blah. And I finally told them, stop doing that. Right? You assume in this context we love each other. You assume in this context we're with each other, and then get on with it. Right? And moreover, I've pushed them. I've had to push them to say, you, "I expect you to call each other out on bad readings of a text, or I expect you to call out each other on bad logic." Because this is part of what a community does. We can help each other flourish by being straightforward and honest with each other and cutting to the chase. Second, and then I'll and then I'll be quiet and give give some quick uh, suggestions. Uh, practices for this week dealing with criticism. I was, um, one, one of the favorite bits I've heard on this. I was talking to a guy that I've gotten to know a bit here in town, and uh, this guy has been has, has had enough prominence that he even got called a name by Donald Trump on on Twitter. Um, and then and then is um, a large part of his denomination was up in arms wanting to hang him. Um, and so, I, I had lunch with him one day when he's in the middle of all this uproar and uh, we were talking about dealing with criticism and I said, well, how, do you, how do you deal with that stuff? And he said, well, there's two things that I try to hold on to. He said, one, he said, do you remember the, the scholar such-and-so? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, he died an alcoholic. I said, I did not know that. And he said, the story that's told about him is that after he published such-and-so, which is a very well-known, very well-respected theological work in New Testament scholarship. After he published such and so, this other guy, and he called his name, wrote a very sharp critical review and published the review of this first guy. And the first guy grew so despairing about the public criticism that he took to drinking and died an alcoholic. Now, what's interesting is that the work of this first guy is much, much better known and much, much more respected than the critic, whose most people don't know his name. Um, And he said, so I remember that. He said, just because somebody criticizes me, it doesn't mean my work's not appropriate or my work's not good. The question is, how am I going to respond to the criticism? And he said, a second thing, and I've held on to this one that I've found very out He said, I try to think about a critic, and I try to ask myself the question, if that critic we're giving feedback or advice to one of my friends, would I be glad that my friend is listening to that person or not? And he said, if I wouldn't be glad that my friend were listening to that person because I didn't think that person was wise enough to try to help my friend, then I say, why should I take his word seriously to me? If on the other hand, I would be glad that my friend were listening to that person, then I step back and think, wow, what do I need to hear from this person who's got some things to say to me. So, uh, for this week, um, here, here's, the, here's, the, uh, here's the one simple exercise I want to suggest we try that we'll do the think-pair-share about next week. It's a really easy one? Well, it's not easy, but it's simple. And that is, choose one person this week, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a friend, or whether it's your employer, and simply go to them and say, "How could I do such and so better? In what way could I do such and so better?" Just to, as a simple exercise of schooling ourselves in being a person who is characterized by the wisdom of being able to hear instruction, or hear rebuke, or hear feedback. We got two a couple of minutes for feedback or suggestions or thoughts on anything. Anybody?
3: Do you find that? Uh this idea of accepting review or accepting criticism is uh, more difficult to take when it comes from your spouse?
1: Um, but you don't have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking I might let Laura answer that for me, but uh, I don't, it depends. I mean, sometimes um, sometimes I'm pretty defensive with Laura. Um, and sometimes I'm pretty defensive with public critique. It just depends, I think. Somebody else?
4: How often if you get someone and you do go with that question that you just said, because I've done this before, and they say, there's really nothing wrong, and you're thinking, because this is the stepchild, and I'm thinking, but there is something wrong, but you're choosing not to tell me, so I just let it go. Is that, can I just let it go? I figured I've opened the door to that person to talk with me, and she's choosing not to share with me. Yeah. So then I just said, I don't own it for now. I ban it. I think that's healthy.
1: Certainly. Yeah, it certainly could be. Yeah. I take
4: criticism a whole lot better than I can give it, but recently I lost it. And I gave it. (laughs) I have a dear, dear friend, many years, that's in Atlanta. And y'all will know, of course, she'll come here and go to church here. (laughs) (laughs) And you will notice she's very imposing, she's very tall, she's extremely attractive, and very rude. Um, She's rude to the servants. When we go out to eat, and I've kept quiet. We've gone into department stores. She is rude to the people there. She's rude. And right now, I'm standing in. And I said to her, We were out shopping, and it was at my shopping if anybody needed to say anything rude, it was me, not her. And she took over, and she talked so to that woman, that I apologized for, and when we got the call, I said, "Look, I'm not going out with you again until you learn how to treat me." And he the door,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all. We look forward to hearing about your to hearing about your adventure this week. Take care. <laughs>
2: Obrigada.